0: Hello and welcome to episode 8 of The Week That Really Was, a podcast hosted by David Quinn and by me, John McGurk. This week, um, we want to do something slightly different because for the last two weeks on this show, we have had guests on who've been talking about the difficulty of setting up a new political party in Ireland and why there's, where there's all this political space uh, to the right of Fine Gael and how there's an opportunity for something new to emerge. And it occurred to us, David and I, as we were talking through this, and indeed to some people who'd written to us, that actually there is somebody in Ireland who has, in recent years, done the hard slog and the hard work of setting up a new political party, which is a very, very difficult thing to do. So we thought we'd invite him on the show, talk through a few issues of the day with him, and see where he thinks the country is going and where the the political direction uh, of the of the island as a whole, in fact, is headed. We're delighted to be joined, therefore, by Pater Tobin, the leader of what is now the fifth largest party in Ireland, if you believe the Sunday Independent the Sunday Times opinion poll of the weekend into. Pater, you're very welcome.
1: Thanks a million for the opportunity to come and speak with you. Really appreciate it.
0: Um, Pater, you uh, a couple of years ago, you 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 left Sinn Fein, um, I think from memory at their invitation, because you wouldn't vote a particular way on abortion, and you decided you weren't gonna take it lie- lying down. You went and you you set up a new uh, political party At the last election You came within A hair's breadth Of getting 2% of the vote You comfortably Were re-elected In your own seat And you had some Surprising performances In other constituencies And you did all that In just a couple of years uh, Which I think um, I don't think You're get The credit from it Elsewhere in the media But to me it was, it was immensely impressive How much work Goes into that And just how difficult Is it?
1: It is animal hard. It is absolutely incredibly difficult uh, to build a political party in Ireland, I have to say. Uh, we are delighted with how far we've come in just under four years. Um, right now, we're polling around, as you said, 4% in some of the opinion polls, which is higher than the Greens, it's higher than people the for-profit, and higher than the Labour Party. And there are political parties that have hundreds of thousands of euros of state funding on an annual basis, that have dozens of elected reps, and have easy access into mainstream media. So, you know, for a political party like ourselves with no state funding at all, uh, with five elected reps, and probably difficulty in getting into the likes of RT News, um, you know, it is an amazing feat that we have already passed some of those parties out uh, in terms of opinion polls. We have about 1400 members now across the country. Uh, We've really focused on the building of a grassroots movement. So people on the ground in different constituencies, getting stuck into the bread and butter issues that are affecting your communities uh, and that is hard work because you literally have to be you have to, you have to travel the country you have to you know motivate people you know set structures up and get teach people how to to do politics and get people moving and remember we're doing this across the whole island of Ireland uh, in the north of Ireland as well. Um, but to be honest we are delighted because the growth has been phenomenal over the last while and um, and it does make me smile at times. Uh, That when, you know, the mainstream media have basically uh, taken a vow of uh, silence in terms of our growth uh, over the last number of years. If we had the same political views as the Suckdowns or the Labour Party, there would be oceans of column inches written about the facts that there's a new movement um, and this new movement is making headway. But there's nothing but silence there at the moment. And it doesn't bother us, to be honest. Um, we're um, We're going to grow in spite of all of that. And and one of the reasons why I felt at the time that we needed to develop a new political party was I noticed in the doll that many of the smaller parties, especially those on the left, it was like they were trying to outdo each other in terms of virtue virtue signaling on whatever the latest intellectual fashion was. So in other words, you know, whatever the the particular trend on on an issue was in, in the country, They would simply try to outdo themselves Mm -hmm. in being the strongest on that trend. And my view was that, you know, we should build a a liberal democracy in this country. And in a liberal democracy, you need to have ideas competing against each other. Um, And only when ideas are competing against each other can you test, can you challenge, and can you measure the value of those um, ideas. Um, And then people can work out what's correct and what isn't. And competition of ideas means that sometimes you have to swim against the, the, the tides, stand against the feeling wind. Um, and that's what we've done. And actually, I think when you do that, you stand out from the crowd far more. And also, you can really kind of mobilize people around the country um, as well. So if I suppose that there's there's about three legs of, 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 of our political party. There's obviously our, our policies. Uh, there's our focus on the grassroots development and structure of the organization. And then there's that idea that we're going to question the mainstream values all the time. We're going to be challenging them. We're going to push them. Uh, and, you know, in that space, I believe there's plenty of op- opportunity for growth.
2: We if I can this? ask you, Patter, so, sorry, John, if I can just cut in. Patter, if you were to put it down into a nutshell, um, what does a offer that's different from, on the one hand, what Finnegan in particular offers, and then on the other, what the various separate parties in our offer,
1: I believe in—in in a nutshell—we uh, are a party of empirical research and common sense. So you know, we're not going to—we're um, not going to take um, the the latest intellectual fashion as gospel. We're going to test it. We're going to base it on uh, empirical research and evidence, uh, and then we're going to take a common sense attitude to it. And um, there's, there's a funny thing in in, in politics, is and it, it goes back to the whole idea of the emperor. Uh, the Emperor's New Clothes. And you, you'd imagine ad, adults, um, you know, who are well paid, who are, you know, been through the rough and tumble of politics, that they wouldn't feel constrained in terms of what they can and can't say. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you there's probably fewer people in the country that are more constrained in what they feel they can and can't say than those in Leinster House. And, you know, I, I've spoken to so many uh, Fine Gael TDs, Fianna Fáil TDs, even Sinn Féin TDs, about issues um, that they would say in private, agree with ourselves, but say that they couldn't say it in public. Yeah. Um, a, and a
0: th- this is a theme pattern that comes up because she, Sharon Cohen at a meeting last night, uh, which we'll discuss in a little while, and also when she was on this show a couple of weeks ago, was making that very point that there that there is what she described, I think from memory, um, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, but a sort of a culture of silence in Leinster House, a culture of fear, where you have a lot of TDs who who don't feel they're able to say the things they believe, and I was making the point that I mean I, I know one former Fine Gael cabinet minister who has made that point to me that he personally feels incapable of speaking out on various issues that he he um he feels strongly about. But I wanted to ask you uh, before we move on to those issues, just one question, which is a lot of people when they're talking about setting up new political parties, and you see this sometimes with some of the smaller parties on your right who aren't represented in the doll. They seem to think, and I think it's the biggest mistake they make, that you just run the flagpole up on national issues. You say, We have a different view on immigration and crime and all the rest of it, and that's it. You you get elected. Whereas I think the thing that that the, the really important insight that you recognize is that to build a political party in this country, you have to know who on the ground needs a medical card need to know who on the ground needs their pothole fixed. And I'm being very reductive there. It's not just those issues. But you guys, it seems to me, have put a huge emphasis on actually learning what the local issues are in a community, what's happening with the local parish halls and places where it needs a new roof. Um, and I think in Irish politics, that's vitally important. Um, and I yeah. think that's the, the difference, the, the thing that you, you're doing differently to those other movements that aren't represented in the Dáil as yet.
1: You're spot on. Um, there's... there's... I actually reckon that only about 10% of the Irish population are ideological um, in either direction uh, in relation to ideology. I think most people, um, they just want to be able to raise their family. Uh, they want to be able to afford accommodation through rent or, or housing. And uh, they want to be able to gain access to healthcare. Uh, they want a decent education for the, for the kids. They want to feel safe in their towns and villages and be able to travel, um, you know, in, in a reasonable fashion uh, around the country. And I think you know if you can come to good logical common sense uh, solutions to that, um, I think most people will will uh, will will take it seriously. I always say that most like the, the 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 item that most people use to vote or to decide their vote is actually their wallet. whether they're rich upper class or people in in disadvantaged working class areas, it still comes down to the ability to achieve those key issues in their lives. And that's why bread and butter. And if you if you look at I was in our website, and you go to the news page on, on our website, ninety percent of the stuff that we produce is bread and butter issues that are affecting people. Because if you're not dealing with bread and butter issues, you're not at the races, and um, you're you're not actually engaging with people uh, at all. And and that's really important. So you know, and we've been focusing on that issue right across the country, uh, whether it's hospital campaigns that we're involved in, you know, campaigns and in, in Ballocholig to keep the guard the station open and the, um, the fire the fire station fishing issues, we will work with local communities on the issues that matter to them.
2: Hadder, if I can just widen the focus a little bit, um, why do you think there has been such, if you like, woke institutional capture of the political parties in Leicester House?
1: I think we have a very concentrated media uh, in this country. Um, So, in other words, um, Ireland is a small market in terms of a media market. There's only about a 1,000 national journalists in this country, if that. Um, And most of those journalists, and they'll admit this themselves, come from a similar demographic in terms of age, uh, in terms of economic backgrounds, probably in terms of location uh, of living uh, as well. Most of them know each other, and most of them will have to work with... You know other news organizations at some stage in the future uh, and because of that let's say the homogeneity of the uh, the media organizations and uh, i think that kind of creates the same situation uh, in um the political space so for example i remember from the previous political party that i was in when you prepare to to go out on a doorstep or in a press conference you basically try to work out what the questions are going to be for the media and then you tailor your questions to suit what those questions are likely to be so if all the questions are coming from only a certain direction well then you keep tailoring in that direction now in other countries with bigger media markets you have left-wing media right-wing media centrists at media so it's possible for people from those three political persuasions to exist because political politicians can't operate outside of the oxygen of media attention because you can't grow you can't communicate with people, so I think that's probably the, one of the biggest issues in, in in Ireland is that concentration. Secondly, I do think there's something in the Irish psyche around this. Um, you know, I, I know you, we're going to touch on this a little bit later, but you know, I think Ireland um, in 2012 is not far off Ireland uh, in 1942. I like, you know, obviously the religion is different, and the the differences are different, and the what we censor is different. Um, but those same instincts to do those things are still there. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So we're just as likely to censor stuff today. We don't have blasphemy rules, but we have hate speech rules. We're just as likely to to be deferential to certain people and not question them and not and not you know challenge them as we were then. They're just different people. Um, you know, I remember there was a debate in the doll about the shocking and horrific sexual abuse of school children by the spiritans. And while I was making the speech, I was kind of thinking to myself: We have horrendous rates of abuse now of children by children because probably in, in the main of the proliferation of hardcore pornography, everybody knows this, but nobody's really questioning it, you know, or doing anything about it. And it's happening in, you know, in, in the in in you know And under the, so under, the understanding of, of, of most people. So. You know, that's what I do think, you know, the same characteristics exist in the Irish psyche as probably did back in, in previous times, but just um, the political compasses is is radically different, you understand.
0: Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I, I agree with everything you said there. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's particularly what you said about journalism, and you didn't use the word groupthink, but it's the word I use. And I think there's also a particular issue in Irish politics, which is the revolving door and the 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 massive proliferation in recent years of non-governmental organizations which are taxpayer funded, which means that if you are a young journalist and you want a career progression out of journalism, which is poorly paid, you're likely heading off to AN other NGO, whether it be the Irish Cancer Society or the National Women's Council or have a point or some ever organisation to become a press officer or you're going into politics to become the press officer of a, political, of, a, of, a, of a government minister or even of an opposition party. And then maybe you might go back to journalism again, like something like Fergus Finlay did later in life. Um, so so there's this, it's it's the one career progression where it's very important not to alienate people, uh, I think is a, is a massive issue. And I think, because I want to move the conversation on a little bit, we saw no better example of that than during the COVID pandemic. Because this week, uh, I was reading your Twitter feed before you came on, Patter, and you you are the only politician I have seen as of yet raise this issue whereby we're out of lockdown now. The pandemic is over and nobody can discuss what happened during the pandemic. It was great. Didn't we save the country? uh, Give Tony Holland a gold watch, move on, forget about it. But people are still dying at an elevated level. Now, we get correspondence every week telling us that we should discuss the impact of, for example, vaccines. I'm not convinced that vaccines are related to excess death rates by any stretch of the imagination. But nobody's talking about those excess death rates at all, which is fueling the people who want to say or believe, sincerely in many cases, that the vaccines are responsible. So what do you think is responsible, Patter? And uh, where would you like an inquiry to focus?
1: Yeah, you you mentioned there we were the only party um, to mention this. And and to be honest, I, I think it's fair to say that Across a range of different issues, it is fair to say AINTO is the only party that's doing X, Y, and Z. Um, so, in this issue, um, we've done a, a, we've done our best to investigate it. Incredibly, you know, last July, sixteen had a sixteen percent higher death rate um, than the previous July. August was seventeen percent higher, and August was actually the fifth highest death rate of any month since start of 2020. So it was competing and outperforming as far as mortality was concerned many of the months in the middle of the COVID crisis. And then we saw the CSO come out with the figures to say that in quarter two, 39.2% increase in the number of deaths. So I contacted the Health Surveillance Centre and asked them, why is this the case? They said to me, maybe it's because there was a cyber attack in 2021. Maybe it's because Some of those deaths weren't registered in 2022. And I said to them, I said respectfully, I said, surely we should know that for a fact rather than surmising on it. And they agreed. They said, absolutely, there should be an investigation into that. But they're not the state agency to carry out that investigation. And like, we have a PQ back to us just in the last 24 hours, a parliamentary question, saying that. You know, there were t- in 2021 there was a 10% decrease in the number of cancer diagnoses, and if, if you look tr- through the whole list of different types of cancers, there's are just massive, significant falls um, in the number of cancer diagnoses that were happening. I was speaking to uh, cancer specialists at the time, and they were saying that the restrictions that were being put in place were significantly reducing the number of people they could deal with. So, a two-year waiting list became a six-year waiting list. Now, uh, uh, that's a six-year waiting list skin cancer so that means if a person has a a, a doctor has decided that this particular uh, mark is likely to be a cancer they could have to wait six years before seeing that consultant yeah like i
2: noticed so I better if, yeah, I, 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 like i noticed uh, a few days ago Chris Whitty, who were essentially the Tony Holohans of um, of Britain, appeared before a parliamentary committee. Now, note that they actually had a parliamentary committee to look at this. And um, they were looking at the effects, or, or rather, the after effects of the pandemic. And Valence and Whitty admitted we're going to have excess debt rates in Britain for some time. And it's because of the after effect of some of the things you're mentioning, all the delayed treatments. Um, Not just on the cancer front, but, you know, heart disease and so on. Um, So this is going to go on. It's happening in basically every European country. I actually don't know what the story is in Sweden, who, of course, had a much more light touch approach to the pandemic than most countries did. So I must look up what's happening in Sweden. Mm. But it's a a common thing across Europe, these excess uh, debt rates. Um, well, not because of the vaccine, because of all the delayed treatments. And we—and as you say, we really ought to be looking at that closely because the previous thing in COVID was if you don't fully support lockdown um, and prolonged measures, you don't care
1: granny dies.
2: So Supply, this is, this we don't seem to care much anymore.
1: So you're, you're dead right. So in cancer, heart disease, stroke and mental health, there was a significant reduction in the, the number of diagnoses Treatment was delayed, so then you know uh, the illnesses advanced, which either made them untreatable or needed significantly more invasive uh, treatment. And um, and the worst thing about this is that at the time, you know that groupthink really f- got into a, a rigid space, and anybody that questioned the closure of breast screening, and um, anybody that questioned the, the closure of any cancer services, literally got identified as the anem- an enemy of the state. Individual. And this is one of the problems is that we need to be able to disagree with each other respectfully in this country. Uh, we don't need to, to cancel or total people who have different views than ourselves. And it's it's that instinct, you know, to cancel or total individuals with different views is actually stymieing the empirical uh debate in this country. It, it's gonna be harder for us to work out solutions in this future uh, if there's a zero sum in every debate, as far as uh, the participants of that debate, and that's one of the, the, the issues that we aim to or seeking to challenge as a culture in the political sphere in Ireland.
0: One of the things, I mean, uh, it's, it strikes me, sorry, sorry, it's very quick. No I think we're getting to the point where we can almost just about say definitively that lockdown killed more people than it saved, because we we, well, we see we see the we see all the things you've just listed, Patter. You can verify them. And and that's before you get into, you mentioned very quickly, mental health. Um, That's before you get into elevated suicide rates. That's before you get into alcoholism and depression and other things that, that arose from people being cooped up in their houses. And you can measure all of those things. You can't measure and you cannot put a number on the lives saved. We're just assumed asked to assume that it's in the tens of thousands. And there's no evidence for that at all. There's lots of evidence of people losing their lives and their health as a result of this. I'll, so, put, I'll put a bit of
2: a side pattern. I'll put a little bit yeah. of a counter-argument there, which is um, that they'd say we would a completely unprotected population, obviously, when the pandemic arrived because it was, because it was a novel coronavirus. And um, at the number if we hadn't had lockdown and all of this, the number of people who would have caught it and died would have been far, far higher than it was. And that would have been greater than what's happening now. But it will be interesting to see how it plays out long-term how long will the excess mortality um, uh, phenomenon play out for? Uh, Because this is not over yet. I mean, the after effects of the pandemic are not over yet because there's collateral damage of the pandemic and there is collateral damage of lockdowns and there is collateral damage from all these delayed treatments. So it's not over yet. So we don't know actually um, what the number of excess deaths will be compared to the number of people who were saved, maybe because of lockdown.
1: Yeah, that like you're right there, and we again we take a nuanced position, and sometimes you know in in this binary world that we live in, sometimes there isn't too much space for political parties that do take nuanced positions. So we're not we're never said that there aren't times where restrictions could be necessary at times. Uh, but what we said is that it should be evidence-based. And and we have, we've actually produced a bill which will force, if it's passed, an investigation into what happens. And actually, more people died in nursing homes and hospitals, two areas that are owned or regulated by the government than any other part of, of Irish society. But there's one interesting thing out of this. The economic crash that happened in 2008, 2008 2010, that's radically woke up a section of, of Irish, the, the political electorate. And started to end the dominance of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. I've noticed that there is a section of Irish society who lived through the lockdowns, and you know we're just completely shocked by the uniformity of views on it. And I think many of those people have been woken up in many ways in a similar fashion. Um, because there, there is a, a large section of Irish society who are now questioning shibboleths of the the woke establishments in this country. Well, and I think okay, and I think yeah. the other political parties are starting to realise that.
2: Well, I mean, um, the kind of presentation of this was either you're for lockdown or you're for nothing. And uh, like you just want a total free-for-all and the pandemic to spread out of control, which, of course, was not the two alternatives because there was all kinds of um, uh, other policies along the spectrum between full lockdown and a, a total free-for-all. It was the likes of what Sweden did, for example. Um, but you'd have been in, in the Dáil, um in around Christmas of um, or the end of 2020, when we had that second big outbreak and into 2021. And there were all these voices and they were very loud in Enster House calling for a total prolonged lockdown so we get towards zero COVID. And anybody who objected to that also was a bad person. Um, And anybody who went out and protested against this, they were bad people, lunatics, um, the kind of QAnon type people. Meanwhile, I'll just say this as an aside, in China, those same people, or those same, some of those same types of people objecting to the zero COVID policy there are heroes. And we kind of can't have it both ways. And I know the two situations aren't identical because we got a vaccinated situation now, <laughs> but nonetheless, you see again, the way that debates are so controlled here and the way they take place under conditions of extreme moral and emotional blackmail all the time. And if you don't agree with the received position, you cannot be a good person. And if you are a good person, you must be mad.
0: Well, I have to say, David, I think you're going too easy on them. You're going right. too easy on them. We, we, <laughs> oh. if, 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 you talk about, about the political si- si- system. If if RTE... Had had their way. I mean, bear in mind, we used to get ISAG on every. Day, sorry, the Independent Scientific Advisory Group, who were made up of people like Tomas Ryan and, um, and various others who were in favour of zero COVID. Listening to them every day, it was like having daily mass on RTE with some individual broadcasters. Uh, uh, you know, just promoting these views to the exclusion of all else. And frankly, if if RTE had had their way, because I think it was an advertising bonanza for media as well, because everyone was at home, mm-hmm. we would be China. Uh, there is no doubt about that. Like, these people wanted zero COVID almost forever, almost indefinitely. And they were they were given an immense media platform. But anyway, we, we, we're talking about consensus here. And I do want to move yeah, to the can conversation. I just,
1: Sorry about yeah, it. just, just, it's important to say there's a significant cost of, to all of that. We mentioned the health costs, but there's also like the housing crisis. So, you know, we were the only country in the whole of Europe that actually closed down all building of houses for a full quarter. And we were the country with the worst housing crisis. You know, a lot of the um, inflationary elements that it, that exist currently, you know, come from the shutdown of supply at that time uh, mm-hmm. as well. So there's a significant cost, and we're going to do our damnedest over the next couple of years to make sure that we have a proper investigation of what's happened here, and that those people who made those decisions are held to account, and that we learn from this so that we don't bloody do this again.
0: Well, I, you're right. I, I I agree with you there, but I want to move on to an area where we might not agree. Because we're talking a little bit about consensus and, and how everyone takes the same side and issues and all the rest of it. I edit a media platform. We report news. We try to be fair to Ain2, We cover into as, as much as we, we can. Um, and every time we do, we get comments from people, Patter, saying, uh, I'm not voting for into because where are they on immigration? Why isn't Patter 2 being down at the East Wall? Why isn't he standing with the people? Um, they, you are perceived, uh, whether you like it or not, by some people who I think might be minded to vote for you otherwise, as being a bit of a softy on that issue, uh, and more aligned with the government and and the other parties than you are with with, for example, the people who are taking a protesting um, stance on that. Is that fair? And where where do you stand on on this issue, the East Wall protests and so on?
1: Yeah, so we have spoken to uh, many of the residents in East Wall in relation to what's happening there. Uh, we've also uh, raised the issue uh, of immigration. Uh, first of all, we believe that as a nation, we need to have a mature discussion of this issue. Um, there is It is tre- treated as a taboo subject by most of the media at the moment, and there needs to be a proper, honest, respectful discussion uh, about this issue. Uh, we are I'll be honest, as a party, we do believe that if people are fleeing from war, from violence, uh, or from hunger, that we should try to be the good Samaritan. And that where we can, uh, we should try to help those who are in serious need. Um, we also believe that the communities uh, that are taking these uh, asylum seekers, first of all, there should be consultation 100% in advance. And that includes consent, because you know the idea of consultation without consent is rubbish. And thirdly, there should be a community dividend in relation to um, uh, migrants going into those areas. So, you know, many of them are working class areas that are already in major difficulties in terms of housing, in terms of doctors, in terms of schools, in terms of transport. So, the state needs to come in and say, listen, we are going to do right by you in terms of investing in those elements so that you can uh, deal with uh, the newcomers that are coming into your area. And the last point I'd make in this. If there are people, and we know there are people abusing the system, therefore people who are coming into the country uh, without, you know, having destroyed travel documents, those people need to, you know, uh, have the laws implemented against them. Because actually people who abuse um, refugee laws are actually damaging, you know, not just Irish people's uh, way of life, but also the real refugees that are coming into the country because they're using those uh, resources uh, that should be helping those who are really in need. And that would be our uh, view on it. As I said earlier, sometimes it's harder to have a a nuanced view than a binary view. But we believe that that's actually a view that is probably very representative of where most Irish people stand on this.
0: One one of the problems of having a nuanced conversation is that uh, other people don't have nuanced views on this. So, for example, Roderick O'Gorman made a statement last week, a very definitive statement, like it's black and white. Communities don't have a veto on who live in their area or who lives in their area. He also, he hasn't, but other people have described the protests in East Wall as racist, which is, and I'm going to editorialize here, it's absolute nonsense. I mean, we have gone down, we've interviewed the people there. In fact, anyone you interview is a pains to say how they are not racist. But it, is Roderick O'Gorman right? Do they? Do, does nobody have a veto of any kind over refugees coming into their area? Or are there circumstances where you have to say, no, a community just doesn't accept this. Uh, we need to find another solution.
1: Yeah, so so consultation is a foundation stone of a democratic society. Communities should have the rights to have a say in what happens in, their own, in in their community. So, for example, we wouldn't put up a wind turbine or you know a pylon or a hotel or even a block of flats in an area without consulting with those people. And it, I just find it really interesting that people like Aon or Reardon, who you know stopped the building of apartments for people in his area. You know, would then look down on and call names of people uh, who have, um, you know, have challenges in relation to some of the some of the issues that are happening in East Wall. So consultation means consent is part of it, and there should be consent about real issues uh, concerning uh, migration. Um, in relation to like we've said very clearly, the people of East Wall, the people of Wicklow, North Kildare, Killarney, Mayo, they are not racist. Um, and You know, having uh, to articulating views around the challenges associated with this does not make you a racist.
2: I think think that um, uh, there's a significant slice about the media and Leinster House who are essentially gaslighting the public on this issue because it's entirely legitimate for an ordinary member of the public to wonder, can we cope with these numbers? And what effect will this have in my area? And uh, These are the most natural questions in the world that come unbidden into people's minds. And when this happens and when they articulate and say out loud these questions, they're basically accused of being racist. Now, to me, that is gaslighting them. And yeah. in the end, it's going to backfire on politicians, because if you won't allow legitimate questions to be asked, uh, then you're opening the door wide to people who will ask them and actually might have bad intentions.
1: Mm. Oh, no, you're right, David. Like, if you underground this conversation, um, it will be manipulated and used uh, by those who are on the extreme side. Um, and, and that's the major danger here. So, and, and again, this goes back to probably how I opened up the presentation of who aimed who is. You know, people in a liberal democracy need to be able to articulate their views respectfully uh, so that there's a competition of ideas. And once you start to sideline, censor views, you're probably towards uh, the near do wells who want to uh, cause trouble with regards to that. So, um, you know, unfortunately Ireland isn't, we, we don't seem to have the maturity to be able to have these conversations.
2: In in Denmark, which is a social democratic um they have a law um Uh, I may have mentioned this before on the podcast, I can't remember, where no area is allowed to be uh, composed of more than 50% uh, migrants and asylum seekers. And the reason is to stop ghettos forming. Now, I think if Donald Trump did that, the world would go mad. But this is the Social Democrats doing it because they're listening to their voters in working class areas who previously weren't being listened to. And so we're going off to vote for the Danish People's Party or whatever it's called. Um, So this was their response. Um, and eventually, you can see something similar happening here that people from areas like East Wall will say, look, um, fair's fair, and there has to be a limit. It can't just be us, and it can't just be areas like us or equivalent areas in rural Ireland. We need a fair deal, and we're not getting us like we're not getting it you're not listening to us you're trying to delegitimize our questions you're trying to delegitimize perfectly natural concerns and so that is the direction of travel in irish politics unless mainstream politicians say yes your concern is legitimate and yes we're going to listen and of course you have a right to an opinion about the makeup and composition of your community i'm not talking about the racial makeup i'm just thinking about the effects on their community of rapid changes and increased population.
1: Yeah, and just, I'll, could, could, I'll, could I just I'll, mention like, don't underestimate the pure uselessness of the government on this. The government identified 500 buildings um, back in March for which they wanted to use to uh, provide a home for refugees. Um, as, as of the end of October, only 10 of those were in use. They bought 29 mm. buildings for the same purpose. Right now, only one of those is in use. Uh, 85% of those who pledged accommodation from private houses at the end of september, in march by the end of september only 15 or 85 uh, percent weren't activated and um, so the governments are getting this absolutely wrong on two levels not being you know efficient in delivery of accommodation and secondly lack of consultation in communities is creating division in those communities and the government like roger gorman has the word integration in his department's name it's not integration he's involved in he is actually dividing communities in the manner he's going about this. By the way,
2: I I mean, like, sorry, a thought occurs to me. So, um, a household will be paid a few hundred euro a month to take in a Ukrainian refugee, and it could be a mother and her daughter or son. Um, Why don't we make the same offer um, to Irish people to try and alleviate the homelessness problem uh, and, and the accommodation and the rental problem? So, if you take in um, this couple, for example, this uh, you know uh, newlywed couple, or whatever the case may be, we will pay you x hundred per month to do that, and that would help to alleviate the pressure. So, what do you make of that? I mean, is that a completely impractical proposal?
1: Well, our view has been that like, we are we see ourselves as a Republican Party, and part part of that is that's really important is equality, and we believe that everybody in Ireland should be treated the same, should be equal, and um, so we don't believe that anybody should get a a jump on anybody else in terms of access to accommodation or in terms of access to service. Um, and that's, many communities feel that that's happening. Um, now, some of the information is not true that is is being given to people. So it's not like refugees are actually getting um, local authority housing. But when, you know, the state provides pods and, and, and pre-built um, housing uh, for, for refugees, they should also do it for Irish people. Because, you know, we should use the word the provision of services should be provided for both groups. If you provide it for one and not the other, you're going to create ill-feeling amongst the community.
0: Patter, I want to, I uh, just the only time I'll do this in this podcast, I'm going to stick on my journalist hat and I'm going to try and make you give me a headline. And you're going to try and avoid giving me a headline, I'm sure. <laughs> but I'm going to try it. Because you said at the beginning of this show, uh, which was very welcome to my ears and be welcome to a lot of people's ears, that Aintu is a party that's empirical. You're based on evidence. You're based on figuring out what the situation is and coming up with a solution that fits the figures. Now, it strikes me in immigration that that is not what has happened. In that, it strikes me that an, that an empirical way to do to do have done this would have been do an audit of the country, see how much housing there is, get a sense of what your capacity is, and then, as in accordance with the European Directive 2005-11, which is the EU law the government keeps referring to, indicates the European Union in the matter of Ukraine, but indeed in other areas, this is the number of people we believe we can take based on what we have... Established the capacity of the country to be. It's what France did, by the way. I- exactly. So yeah, like ha- no, we,
1: we we have asked the government to provide a quantifiable plan in relation to this, based exactly on that. So in other words, that rather than you know just you know uh, feeling our way in the dark on this, that we would identify exactly what can be done uh, in relation to this. But I, I do feel that the government's inability to provide accommodation is also a big problem in this.
0: But I, you said that. Yeah, yeah. You're both you're both trying to avoid me asking my question, which was matter <laughs> in well, Aintu's not view, consciously. In Aintu's view, should there be a limit on the number? Should the government say there is this is the because they've said we will not set limits under any circumstances. Should they say we can take thirty thousand people but no more? Or should there be no limit?
1: But for me to say there's a limit without doing the empirical research would be the wrong thing to do, surely. So I, I do believe that there 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 is simple maths and there's simple... But there physics.
2: is a theoretical limit, right?
1: So, so yeah, no, there is maths and there is physics. So in other words, there is only a certain amount you can go in, in this direction before you actually do hit a wall. So I'm not saying that it is limitless. I, I'm not saying that at all. Um. But what I'm saying is that the research needs to be done to find out exactly what that is. I currently believe that in part government's uh, inability to get this right is creating a limit currently at the moment that's been felt uh, around the country I think the, if the government got it right in terms of uh, the proper provision of accommodation there could be more that could be done before we would achieve that limit
2: all right see we, does we... this thing sorry is this thing about the country's full and then people say no it's not for a sparsely populated country you're going to get five million people used to have a lot more um and of course that's true, um, but if a country literally has no accommodation, well, then it kind of to all of practical t- intents and purposes. Yeah, yeah. no. Listen, the country the, is the country's
1: bu- the country's building twenty four thousand houses on an annual mm. basis. So, mm. you know, if the, if you have natural growth in the population and external growth of two or three times that, but obviously after a period of time, you're hitting a limit. Mm.
0: Mm. Right, right. Well, look, we're all here in very serious danger of breaching the government's new hate speech legislation by talking about this issue at all. And I wanted, I know, David, you wanted to talk about that because there was a meeting last night. Well, now, you know more about me than David, so you might introduce the issue. There was a a meeting last night, I understand, on this issue, and you wanted to ask Padder about it.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I wasn't at the event, but I saw it actually reported on Grip and I was aware of it. I was at a different event. Um, So Wins Hotel, this new group, uh, Free Speech Ireland, is it? Yes, Um, I'd never heard of them before, but they seemed to be mainly student-based and they had a number of speakers um, at WINS. Um, and they were um, uh, Jared Casey, who was a philosophy professor at UCD, was Sh- Senator Sharon Kilgan. It was Matty McGrath and um, Eno Doherty, the columnist. And so, so they were all expressing their reservations about this uh, hate speech, hate crime law. Um, and I've seen patterns like, I think Matty said last night, that is almost no TDs in the door have spoken out against it. He said he's one, you're another. I think actually, Carl Nolan has as well. So, what's your view of this whole area?
1: Yeah, so we we oppose censorship one hundred percent. So, sense the history of censorship has it, it's never ended well. Uh, censorship is authoritarian. Uh, it deletes the liberty of citizens first of all, which is important. Uh, but secondly, it then de- then allows for societies to significantly swing in ideological directions without any breaks on it at all, because nobody can actually counter uh, an ideological direction in, within a state. And I, I think, you know, an example of this is the whole JK Rowling uh, situation. So on, on social media, we see activists dressed up in the colors of love and inclusivity, uh, and then they threaten to beat, rape, assassinate, or bomb people like JK Rowling for saying very simple things, such as a woman is an adult female. And, you know, when you get into that type of space, you have to be really cautious around the state then making it illegal to say certain things. And even, and this bill allows for Gardy to go into people's homes, not for saying things, not for publishing things, but because they might have a material in their homes that they have produced themselves that has their views on it that haven't shown to anybody else. That's very, very serious thing to happen. And like, it, it just amazes me that we have, at the moment, this Minister for Justice, uh, who is rolling out all of this, what I would call, woke material. And at the same time, we have birdie who are being beaten up on the street by thugs, who are having their cars rammed by thugs, and you know who, who is not investing her time and energy and resources on actually making the streets a little bit safer in this country, that's the job she, she has, and she's not doing that. So, you know, our attitude is that, you know, you, you people should be respectful. People should be um, decent in their ability to talk to each other. But the day we go down the, uh, the route of banning certain ideas is the day that we get into really dangerous territory uh, as a republic. And that's why, you know, we have very strongly come out against the bill And that's that's there. I was laughing because I was in the doll and I was looking at my Sinn Féin, previous Sinn Féin colleagues, you know, lauding the minister in relation to this. I was thinking back to the days of Section 31 and how Sinn Féin was like so angry that, you know, anybody could dare uh, censor political view. Um, And it's just... it's just I amazing did, I, to
0: see it. I didn't hear Jerry Adams' voice until I was about 12 or 13 years <laughs> old age. It was, a, it was a blessed time. Anyway, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. But uh, I want to test your your, your, your theoretical limit on that. which is, I mean, in fairness, because we have to be somewhat even-handed here. Is there any limit at all to that principle of not censorship? Because you gave the very good example of J.K. Rowling. What about Kanye West? What about a guy who goes on, um, say, comes on a podcast like this and says, I love Hitler. Hitler was great. Hitler gets a bad rap. I mean, I don't think that's a crime, but do you think there are any theoretical limits?
1: Well, I, I do think incitement to violence uh, is wrong, um, and you know, I, like obviously, words can defame, um, and you know, words can rob people of their their good name. Uh, and I think and
2: these are and these are already against the law.
1: They, yeah, so I, I'm happy with the law as it stands. I think that the law as it stands is, you know, does a good job in terms of this. An actual fact: if we want to start tackling real hate speech. We need to start bringing up our bloody kids properly in terms of having respect for people, and and that's it's actually a cultural issue that's happened over the last while, where people are tearing you know lumps out of each other in the most ignorant fashion. Like there's there's two things that that's here. Like hate is ignorance and violence, and and you know people being horrible to each other. You know what what I'm saying is that ideas that are respectfully delivered and you know properly thought out. They should be allowed to to have air and traction, but the ignorance we have to as a culture deal with that in, in raising raising our, our our kids. Like I I said in the doll actually that you know the other quote that's attributed to Voltaire, I may not agree, you know, with what you have to say, but I'll defend to the death. You're right to say it. You know, I, I think Helen McEntee's version is I may not agree with what you have to say, and I'll put you into jail for saying it.
0: Yeah. Um, David, you were saying before this I thought it was an interesting uh, point which is the Guardie there isn't even a hate speech law in this country yet there is no. I mean it's it's going through the draw I think Sharon Keown said last night that it might be the end of next year by the time it comes into force if it comes into force which sadly I think it will but the Guardie are behaving in this country as if it's already on the books I mean if you go onto their website they have a whole spiel about what's hate and avoiding hate speech and how they'll treat things as hate crimes there's no law underpinning that Um David, are we in some kind of bizarre universe where the Gardaí are inventing the laws themselves, or do you think it's coming from the Department of Justice? Where, where is this coming from? Um,
2: well, there's a unit in the guardy called something like the Diversity and Inclusion Unit, and it's inviting people, and it has been for some time now, uh, to make complaints about being victims of hate. Not crimes because you say although they do talk about hate crimes even though that's not against the law yet because the law hasn't been passed but they're kind of anticipating the law it's like those precogs and minority report who kind of anticipate the crime and move in on the bad before he's done anything it's almost of that kind of um, um uh sort of realm um so they say even if it's just a hate incident not a crime even though, again, the law hasn't been passed, Um, the definition of a hate incident is completely and utterly subjective. Um, So somebody who perceives that somebody who has said something bad to them is motivated by, quote-unquote, hostility or prejudice, then report it to us, and we will treat it as a hate incident, even though it is simply your perception. And there is no objective standard used, whatsoever now i don't know what kind of law you can have uh, that has no objective standard that is based purely on subjective factors i mean that is just asking for a whole world of trouble and even though a person who reports a hate incident and they might name someone so the hate incident i think even under the upcoming law wouldn't be a crime what they're going to do is they're going to magnify the figures and they're going to publish these figures each year the number of hate incidents and they will be taken objectively speaking as hate incidents even though it's all based on this objective perception of the person making the report. And they're going to make the country look much, much worse than it really is. Because I don't think this is a country that's full of hate. I simply don't believe it. There are people like that, but I don't believe, in general, this country is full of hateful people. And that is the impression they're giving.
1: Can I, can I just briefly come in there? Um, we started the, the, the discussion about you know the, the political culture in this country. I actually think we've reached a period... Where Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael can't actually say no to anything. I, I, I'm struggling to think of an idea that you could put in front of them, uh, in either in the media or you know through one of the smaller political parties that they would say no to. So you have got like obviously the censorship laws that we're talking about now, commercial surrogacy, the decriminalisation of drugs, uh, euthanasia uh, and assisted suicide. You know the government will not say no to anything, and that's why I, I would say to people. If people really want to grab hold of the society that we live in and really want to influence the direction we're going on, it's really important that citizens take responsibility themselves and become active, politically active, because, you know, it's it's only by taking votes out of the ballot boxes of these individual political parties that these political parties are ever going to wake up. And the only way that can be done is through a good, well-structured, organized uh, political movement across the country. Um, and you know, it just it just shocks me. There's nothing that this government would say no to now.
0: No, it's
2: amazing, John. John, so, so you make your point, John.
0: Well, I, I, I had two quick points I wanted to make. The first is that it's not only what Patter said there, but the political parties and media. It's also the civil service, because I get the impression a lot of time watching this government closely and talking to people who are involved with it that a lot of these policies. I mean, I'm sorry, I, you will never convince me that Norma Foley this week came up with the idea of taking away mm. um, uh, leave. From teachers or the right to a career break. That's a civil service idea. A lot of these policies, I think, are coming directly from uh what you called a couple of weeks ago, David, uh, woke Sir Humphreys in the civil service. And 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 mm. I think it extends to what Patter says, they can't say no. But my final point on hate speech is the hypocrisy of it. Because the number one rule with hate speech is we don't hate. The people passing that legislation believe themselves functionally incapable of hate. There is no circumstances in which um, a liberal, progressive person will be convicted of a hate crime for calling you, David, a Catholic fascist. Uh, because yeah. I see the stuff you get, for example, on your Twitter every day, which is motivated 100% and entirely by perceptions of your religious faith. Um, and th- 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 But that will never be prosecuted because the only kind of hate you can have uh, and this is a prediction which i believe will hold very well is hate against a group that progressive ireland thinks is hated uh, not a group that progressive ireland hates and 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 that is the hypocrisy at the heart of this law and what makes it so dangerous and why it's not just a speech law it's actually a political law but maybe yeah we'll because when i was
2: saying like when i was saying that ireland in general is not a country full of um hate um there are obviously uh, political um factions in the country at both ends of the spectrum who do preach hate, class hate, um, hatred of the Catholic Church, hatred of minority groups, so that definitely exists, but it's not a general problem across the community. John, as you know, um, uh, I really wanted to say a few things about the centenary of the foundation of the Irish state. No, it's about to this get you. week. Good, and um, particularly the first fifty years. Uh, and I know Paddy, I was talking to before, is a great point to make about this. But I'll just get my speed out of the way first. So the first fifty years, sixty years, basically up until RTE came to rescue us, is portrayed as a completely benighted period, and it's benighted because of the Catholic Church and because of Eamon De Valera chiefly. And so the and, and so the picture that's painted is um, uh, Eamon De Valera. Um, captured by the Catholic Church, but Eamon de Valera also captured by a kind of, and I say this as somebody who's finnegale background, background, um, captured by this kind of really insular and protectionist outlook that kind of cut us off from the world and that the Catholic Church with its institutions and its repression and so on. Now, I look across Europe in the period from 1922, and I say, but well, okay, was Ireland really so bad compared to your average European country at the time? So in 1922... We had just come out of World War One, and Europe was in a disastrous condition, naturally. Um, and Ireland had come out of a war of independence and a civil war. So economically, we were in a dreadful condition in a world that was in a dreadful condition. So seriously, what was the economy going to look like in that period? And then we come out of the 1920s and we, and we hit what? We hit the Great Depression. And so the world economy, a, again, is in complete rag order. And then what happens? towards the end of the Great Depression, and in fact, helps to lift the world out of it, World War II. Okay, so this takes account of the first few decades after independence. So the country simply could not find its feet, and most of the rest of the world couldn't either. So what was happening in Spain? We had an absolutely horrible civil war that killed about 600,000 people, and your choice was Franco or a Soviet-backed Party. So that was your choice in in Portugal to get a fascist dictator under Salazar um, France a bitterly divided country ripe for all kinds of political extremes Which actually makes it quite easy for the Germans to come in and divide and rule Italy you have Mussolini Eastern Europe all kinds of disastrous regimes um, uh, Russia of course speaks for itself Sweden by the way social democratic rule for decades, they had eugenics and they had mass sterilization of people not considered fit to breed. It was 60,000 women mainly between the 1930s and the 1970s, 90% as I say women, and they had a department for racial hygiene, which did not close until the 1970s. So where was the Nevada that the critics of Ireland from that time point to? There wasn't one, there simply wasn't one. So they don't do proper historical comparisons between the Ireland of that time and the countries That they seem to think were some kind of nirvana didn't exist, and there were many countries far, far worse than us for much of that period.
0: So What you're saying is that Archbishop McQuaid gets a bad rap.
2: He gets worse rap than he ought to be getting. But Ireland at that time no, no, I, I, I I,
0: I, I agree with you for the Mm. record. But just to be, you're right. I think you're entirely correct. Um, it's, it is it is it is it is pornographic. The coverage of of Ireland as uh, this kind of black dark black hole into which women and children went and didn't emerge again. And you know there was there was no sex until the Irish Times invented it. And you know the whole country was a basket case where we where we, we all lived in huts with. With muck up to our necks and 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 pitchforks trying to fix our thatched roofs, it's a pornographic fantasy to justify the Ireland we live in today. No, do you I see, I,
2: I, yeah, do you see, obviously, like bad things were happening, but mm. it's this notion that um, everywhere else was better. It's just not true. And in fact, there was two stabilizing influences. There was a father, Seamus Murphy, writing about this. He's also a philosopher in the Irish Times the other day. He was commenting on the centenary of independence. He said, in the early decades, uh, all these countries around Europe succumbing to fascism or communism. And he said, we had two stabilizing influences here. One was uh, the tradition of British parliamentary democracy. So we held on to that and didn't succumb the way the other countries did to various forms of dictatorship. And the second thing he said was actually the Catholic Church, because it was It was able to unite the two sides in the Civil War, and it was the only thing that was going to unite them. And that was an extremely important thing that is also vastly underestimated by the people who pour nothing but scorn upon that period of our history.
0: Patter, what about you? Were the, were, yeah. the, were the champagne corks popping in a headquarters on Tuesday for the anniversary of the Free State? I'd like to hear him comment, though first of all, about <laughs> yeah, well, the well, demonization first of, all, of know, past. Uh,
1: we, we would put the state back to, to 1919 when the, uh, the first doll um, <laughs> was, was sat rather than the Fine Gael Free State. Uh, but anyways, um, no, listen, I think there's a lot, lot of uh, truth in what you say. I, I always find it interesting that uh, even economically, you know, Ireland probably lacks the Ardna Crosha ambition today. Okay, um, you know we can't build ten percent of the social housing that was built uh, in the first three or four decades uh, of this state uh, right now. And sure, there was there was horrendous emigration in those years, but actually, you know, in the last decades there was horrendous emigration. I was talking to a, a couple last night who told me that four children were living in Australia and and um, and Canada at the moment. One of the interesting things about this is history is extremely political. So, if you own the narrative of what happened in the past, you can you can pretty well own the narrative of what should be happening now, and um, because people will react against uh, what they perceive to have happened in the past. I, you know, my 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 view on this is that actual what we should be doing we should be measuring outcomes for for, for society now compared to what happened uh, in the past. So. There's a really interesting um, survey carried out there which said that 10% of people under the age of 35 have have attempted to take their own life. And that's a shocking statistic. And if you compare it, only 1% of those aged 65 and over have attempted to take uh, their own life. Um, The level of mental health currently in this generation vis-a-vis previous generations is incredibly high. The level of murder, the level of sexual assault, um, the level of crime is exceptionally high. You know, the idea that you have couples now who are literally giving up at six o'clock in the morning to drop the kids into a creche, to travel, you know, three hours commuting time that day to work, to rush home to to do this, to spend, you know, 50 years of their lives paying off a mortgage. And, um, you know, that would if someone told me that that was going to be my life when I was in primary school, I would have went, ah, here, I don't think I'll bother studying at all. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, you know. We, we don't really measure what's happening in our own generation with, with any great level of, um, you know, um, you know certainty or uh, measurements. And, and we need to do that more because there's actually a lot wrong with this current generation's uh, life experience that we need to change. And I think that's where the focus should be.
0: I'd say I agree with you both. Um, I, 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 I think we, first of all, we spend far too much time in this country uh, looking back. At the past and when we do look at the past we look at look at it as i said through a pair of glasses which distorts everything into the worst possible version of what it was because as david said in a previous edition of this podcast there were very decent people who lived in ireland from from before independence through independence right up until Fintan O'Toole liberated the country um there have always been good people uh in this in this country our parents it. and grandparents our, uh, everyone's parents and grandparents. Mm. So so it's uh, so it's it's an extraordinary it's an extraordinary narrative and as as uh, Pater said it better than I could, but you look at Family Breakdown, you look at all the things Pater mentioned, I'm not so sure we're much better off. But unfortunately, we could talk about that all night, but we and we kinda have. This is one of the longest episodes we've ever done. Um thanks, Pater, for making it so. Um and, and for, for for sharing your thoughts with us. Uh we hope if you listen to this you enjoyed it very, very much. Uh and as ever, David and I are very grateful. Uh, that you do do us the honor of tuning in once a week to listen to our various wafflings. If you enjoy them, please share them with others. Um, And in the interim, we will see you this time next week, once again, for the week that really was.